Well, that music is dramatic. I'm not quite sure I live up to that, but we'll, we'll go with it. Well, if you want to know how to do something the right way, you watch an expert, don't you? If you want to know how to play basketball, you, um, you watch Michael Jordan and you figure out this is what it means, okay, Dave or Blair Bird. And so you figure out this is what real basketball looks like. And thankfully, uh, in following the Lord, the Bible has given us a lot of examples of people to emulate. Like this is what it looks like to follow the Lord with all of your heart. People like Abraham, Moses, Job, Esther, and so on. A lot of people in the Bible give us the, the right way to follow Jesus. And yet sometimes what we do need are some bad examples. And the Bible gives us those as well. And the reason the Bible gives bad examples, examples of bad behavior or bad following of God is so that we will be warned and so that we'll know what to avoid. The people of Israel were a poor example of faith. And Paul brings up their history in an effort to encourage the Corinthians not to be like them. Uh, back in the old days when Michael Jordan is heyday, the, the commercial was, I want to be like Mike. And so that, if you all remember that, if you're old enough to remember that, I want to be like Mike. And so uh, all, the, all the boys, you know, in school, little kids, they, when I'm Michael Jordan. They all bought his shoes and everything. They thought it'd make them jump higher and everything. It did not, of course, but it made him rich. Well, when we're looking at Israel, you need to say, I don't want to be like them. If you love the Lord, you don't want to be like them. As a whole, as a people, it's not a good example. And so Paul in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he's warning them how not to be a bad example. If you don't want to be a bad sermon illustration, then don't behave like Israel. That's basically what he's saying. And so don't worry, uh, Chillicothe Baptist Church, those of you now that are faithful members, I don't have any bad examples. I do have funny things that you've done, but don't worry, I would never say anything derogatory about you because you guys have been a blessing. I mean that seriously. I'm not being sarcastic. I, I don't have nightmare uh, stories to tell about the present congregation. You guys have been fantastic. You do funny things and goofy things, but so do I. And so we're, we're in that together. But sometimes uh, there are churches where it's just one bad example after another, one horror story after another. And so what Paul is saying to this church is don't be like Israel or you're going to be that story. I mean, this church at Corinth already has everything against it. It's, it's horrible. And if you, you, how would you like it if all of the stuff that has gone wrong in the history of this church, people wrote it down and passed it out to all the other churches and said, read this about that church. Well, that's what's happening to Corinth here. And, and so all, their, their dirty laundry is aired out in public for perpetuity until Jesus comes. And Paul is saying there's a way to get off of that train, okay? There's a way to jump off of this wagon. And so if you don't want to be like Israel, if you don't want your story told over and over again of this is how not to follow God, then pay attention to them, what they did wrong, and don't do that. So, first of all, there's an exhortation here about how not to be a bad example. And so the first five verses of chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians gives us that. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown, or the word means cut down, in the wilderness. So there's an exhortation here that he's giving to the church, and this exhortation, again, is how to avoid being a bad example for other churches. And so he says, first of all, what needs to be done is a recognition, recognize the richness of their provision. The people of Israel, their provision, look what all that they had. They were all under the cloud. Now, for many of us, 
being under a cloud makes us think of Eeyore, right? Where just things are wrong. And bad. But if you're marching across the desert, think of what a blessing the cloud would be. God was their sunscreen. So he had a cloud over these people the whole way so that the sun would not just burn them up. Talking about the graciousness and kindness of God. They all passed through the sea. What was this about? This is their escape from the most powerful nation on earth and their ruthless leader, Pharaoh. And God brought them through the sea on dry land. And then he drowned the army of Pharaoh in the sea. This is their provision. How gracious is our God. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What does this mean? Okay, so this is not talking about baptism as we understand it but there is an analogy here a parallelism if you will their identity is established by going through the Red Sea this is when they became a nation and so in a sense they're baptized into Moses Moses is the mediator of this covenant he is the undisputed leader of this group of people and so as their leader they're going to be known as those identified with Moses just as you when you are baptized by immersion as a sign of your faith in Jesus once you're baptized the reason that you're baptized in front of the congregation and not in private is because you are identifying with those people you are now part of a new people a new creation that's what you're part of now and so this is what they're, they're, this this group of people this ragtag group of people have been nothing but slaves and brickmakers all of a sudden now they're a nation and they're identified as such as soon as they pass through the Red Sea and come out on the other side they are if you will baptized they have left slavery they have by faith followed Moses gone through the Red Sea and are out on the other side and now they're a different people they're they're their own nation until that moment they were just slaves of Egypt they had no identity so this is God providing them with an identity and it says they all ate the same spiritual food what was the food that they ate well it was the manna from heaven now it's spiritual in the sense that it dis- it does not come from the earth okay but the the manna from heaven is meant to represent something what what does it represent it represents the word of god and the gospel it's the revelation of god god revealing to man and so man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and so manna is supposed to represent that and so you understand that when the people reject the manna and start complaining about it why God is so infuriated because not because he cared about what they ate so much as they were rejecting the very symbol of that which he was revealing to them about himself not in the manna itself so much as in everything else And the manna was supposed to remind them that God would feed them, not just physically, but spiritually. He would feed their souls. And so they were being provided. They all drank the same spiritual drink. drink. And so what was it that they drank? It was a spiritual drink. Everybody knows that in the desert there was a freestanding Starbucks. And so they all drank the same spiritual drink. Now, so what, what is it? You can see here also an allusion to the Lord's Supper. Because Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 11. But he's already alluding to it here that the things that happened to Israel, they were illustrations of the reality that was coming. So they had the spiritual drink, spiritual food, spiritual drink, okay? So the spiritual drink. Now, we know it was just water, right? It was just water. But what was spiritual about it is this, that God miraculously fed them and quenched their thirst with water from a rock and the rock is supposed to represent whom Christ now some of you you you're so steeped in dispensationalism you think that Jesus didn't exist hardly until the New Testament but did you know that the pre-incarnate Christ walked with Israel how do I know that well it says it in the Bible I've been kind of addicted to this and learning from this rather than what somebody else has dreamed up about the way things work that rock was Christ this explains why when the second time around on this thing when the people complained about not having water 
that Moses, when he just hauled off and struck that rock as hard as he could, that God said, that's it, you're not going to the promised land. Now, for some of us, we're like, wow, that's harsh. After all that Moses put up with, I'm one of those. I'm like, good night. But you know why it is? The rock represented Jesus, and you don't disrespect it. The rock provides. You don't cause the rock to provide. Remember what Moses said? You bunch of rebels, you want me to give you some water? I'm going to give you some water. Whack! Moses, you can't give water. Jesus said, whoever believes in me will spring up from him a well of living water, which is everlasting life. Moses cannot do that. Only the rock can do it. And so Moses confused the gospel there. Moses led them to believe, unwittingly, I believe, but he led them to believe that as the mediator of a covenant, the old covenant, he could provide salvation. And God says, no, you don't. No man does that. Only the rock provides salvation. So you see what the, the provision that these people had. But what happens is this. Then it, Paul is warning them, but I want you to realize the reason for their destruction in verse 5. Even though they were provided all these things, here's the reason for their destruction. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown or they were cut down like grass in the wilderness. Most of them. How many? Do you remember what happens when the spies come back and they say, we can't overtake the land, there are giants there, we can't do it. And only two of them says, we can do it. Caleb and Joshua. God says, okay. And the people then started wailing and crying. Oh, if we'd only stayed in Egypt, oh my goodness, you know, this is terrible. We had pickles back there, whatever it was. And so God says, okay. And the people, remember, they said to God, you just brought us out here to die in the desert. Okay, well, that's what you want. That's what you're going to get then. I didn't bring you out here for that. I, bring you out, I brought you out here to deliver you, but you have rejected me for the last time. And so what does he do? Everybody 20 and up, they stay in that desert until all of them die. When the Bible says here, most of them, all of them except for two people, Caleb and Joshua, and then everybody 19 and under. And so those all went into the promised land, but everybody 20 and up, they didn't get to go. Do you know what that means? If there were basically 600,000 men uh, in Israel in that day, about the same number of women, 20 and up, that's about, you know, we're looking at 1.2 million people. So for the next 38 years, do you know what happens? 90 people a day die. Nothing but death and funerals for Israel from this point until he cleanses them of all of these unfaithful people. Now, here's something important to understand, and we'll get to this in just a minute. What that picture is is of this unsaved Israel. They're not saved. They didn't trust in the rock. They only complained. They didn't trust in the manna. They only complained. They didn't trust in the cloud. They only complained. Every step along the way, their complaining showed that they did not trust God. No one can make a case that Old Testament Israel trusted the Lord. We can make the case that some individuals did. But we can't make the case that they did. And being an Abraham doesn't cause you to be saved. The book of Romans is extremely clear about that. They thought, because they're related to Abraham, they had a free pass, they could do whatever they want. And God was saying, no, you don't. You have to trust the rock, and you're not trusting the rock, and so I'm done. And so what comes upon them next is death, just death. And through this nation, God gives us all kinds of pictures of salvation, but the people themselves couldn't see it, except for the few, except for the remnant. Isn't that the way it always is? Just a remnant of people. So this is a warning and the, the warning is to the Corinthians is this. You can't be just mouth professors of faith. You've got to be a heart possessor. You have to trust God with all your heart. You have to trust in his salvation with all your heart. Just being around the things of God and being told about the things of God and hearing the songs of God and hearing the laws of God doesn't turn you into a Christian. At some point, you have to switch over from mere head knowledge to a faith knowledge in which you surrender your life 
to him. So that's the exhortation to the church. You're a church member? Be sure you're in Christ. Just being a church member is not it. By being a church member, what you are supposed to be saying is, I'm trusting in the rock for my salvation. I trust in the rock for my water, my spiritual water, the Holy Spirit. I trust in the Lord God Almighty and His Word. I trust in what Jesus did for me on the cross. I trust in Him. And so you're supposed to be saying that, but just being around church people is not enough. That your mom and dad are church members or followers of Jesus doesn't make you a church member. I mean, it doesn't make you a Christian. You, you may be a part of church, but you're not really a Christian. Don't be fooled by just being around religious things. This is hard for kids sometimes that grow up in church because they don't really have, you know, their drug-dealing, Harley-riding days where they come to Jesus and there's a radical change. And so sometimes they ride on the coattails of mom and dad about the things of God. But at some point, they have to stand on their own feet and say, this is mine. Whether mom and dad go to heaven or hell, this is mine. This is Christ is mine and I'm his. Our exhortation. Then our examples. Now he gives some examples here of the unfaithfulness of Israel. All of these bad examples. And so look, look at this. I, I have labeled these as four different kinds of sins. The sin of compromise, the sin of carnality, the sin of complaining, and the sin of criticism. And look, look at this. These are evidences of, of an unregenerate heart because these, are, th these things would be the lifestyle of these people. It's not just a one incident. It's not just a thing that they fight against. This is their heart. They have a heart of stone. Now, look, look what happens. First of all, he says in verse 6, now these things took place as examples for us. And, and the word example there means really a warning to us. So all these things happen as a warning to us that we might not, not desire evil as they did. They desired evil. They didn't desire Christ. They desired evil. And so here's the first sin. Verse 7 talks about the sin of compromise. Do not be, like, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So what is the reference there? It's to Exodus 32. And you remember, Moses goes up and on the mountain, and, and he's up there for 40 days, 40 nights, and he's getting, you know, Ten Commandments and so on and so forth, and comes down, and what's happened? They've made a golden calf. They've taken all their jewelry and stuff, and they've, they've made a golden calf. And, and said... Here is your gods. Now, what did they do? They also had a worship service to the Lord, and then they participated in the idolatry and immorality of the worship of the golden calf. They put both of them together. Does that sound familiar? The, the problem is syncretism. They're trying to bring all of them together and say, look, we've got God, and we also got the God of Egypt. Let's just bring them all together, and that way we can be delivered. So what happens is their hearts trusting in something else. Idolatry is this. Idolatry is having our affections drawn away after something that isn't God. It's loving something other than God. Giving him, giving something else the affection that belongs to, to the Lord. The loyalty that God deserves. Giving it to someone that, something else. I'm loyal to this. I'm dedicated to this. I don't miss this. But we put God to the side when he's inconvenient. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to remind you, we, we now live in a culture that, and I'm saying this repeatedly to people, we now live in a culture where following Jesus is no longer convenient. You can't have it all anymore. You're, you're going to have to make decisions. And you're going to have to make hard decisions. And your kids are probably going to cry baby about it. But you're going to have to decide, man, are you going to man up and be a man, or are you going to bow and cave to everything else in the world? It's a day of, of, of setting ourselves apart. It's a time to say, well, <coughs> we'll have to count all things as lost that we might gain Christ. And there's some of us that we're not willing to count sports as loss. We're not willing to count work as loss. We're not willing to count other relationships as lost that we might gain Christ. No, we want all of it. We want it all. And so did the people of Israel. And they were drawn away. 
in their affections toward other things. <coughs> what happens is there are 3,000 people that die, and the rest of them are struck with a plague. God is serious about how we worship, extremely serious. God is jealous for our loyalty to Him. He doesn't just want our affection, He demands it. He doesn't want part of it, He wants all of it. Love the Lord your God with how much of your heart? All. The sin of carnality is next. He says in verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, if you're a Bible, Bible reader, you find out that when you go to the book of Numbers, it says not 23,000, but 24,000. Well, you know with numbers, a lot of times there's estimate. And so some people round down and some people round up. So there's not a contradiction here in the Bible, okay? So Numbers 25, though, I don't know if you remember the story. Moab's king, Balak, he was afraid of Israel. He's like, these people, they're, they're large in number, and I'm afraid they're going to take over our land. So he hires Balaam, the crooked prophet, and the corrupted prophet. He, he hires Kenneth Copeland. Or Joel Osteen. And, and can be bought for money. And so he says to Balaam, I want you to curse the people of Israel. And so Balaam says, well, you know, I can only do what the Lord allows. I mean, I, I can only do so much here, buddy. And he goes, man, I'll, do, I'll do double your salary. What, what do you want? And so Balaam's like, man, there's money to be had here. So he goes and talks to the Lord about it. And the Lord says, no, you can't curse him. And so he goes back to the king and says, you know, I can't curse him. And what good are you? Man, I hired you to curse. You're not cursing anybody. I want you to bring a curse on them. And so, so Balaam comes up with an idea. And he says, King, listen to this. I can't curse them, but I got a plan to corrupt them. And so they get the women of Moab to go down and seduce the men of Israel. And in sexually seducing them, they lead them into idolatry and worship of another god. And God, in his anger over this, because of this, the leaders that led in that rebellion, they were all killed, and 24,000 more die of a plague. Now, I'm going to try to say this next part without being too graphic, because I don't want you to have a conversation over a Happy Meal that you really are uncomfortable having. But the plague was stopped when Phineas the priest grabbed a javelin, ran into the tent where there was an Israelite man and a Moabite woman, and he ran the javelin through both of them. That's what you call gigging sinners. And God stopped the plague. Now, you can figure out how he got both of them with one javelin. You can worry about that later. So, God stopped because, why? Of Phineas's zeal for the holiness of God then the sin of complaining look in verse 9 we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents I don't know about you but I don't want to put Christ to the test because I don't want to be destroyed this way but again we're talking about the Old Testament here who are they putting to the test Christ Christ himself now what's going on here what happens is the children of Israel, they're complaining about God's provision for them. And we don't want this, and we don't want that, and we're tired of this, and this old rotten manna stuff, we're tired of eating it. And we want quail, we want more quail, and all of this stuff, you know, we want more meat on the menu. And so God, because of their complaining, He sends poisonous serpents among them. And the people, in dying from these serpent bites, they ask Moses to pray for them that the Lord would deliver them. And you know how the Lord delivers them. The Lord told Moses, make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a pole. A pole like this and with a crossbeam like this and a serpent wrapped around the crossbeam. When someone was bitten by a snake, if they would look to the bronze serpent on the pole, the person would live. 
Now, where do you hear the retelling of that? In the New Testament, where is it used? Do you know? John 3, 15, John 3, 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever looks to him will be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish from the bite of the serpent, but have everlasting life. The picture was Christ. And those who refused to look in faith died. But those who looked to the cure lived. Why was God so angry? Complaining. Complaining is the evidence of lack of faith in God. It's not being content and trusting in His provision. And God had already had a long history of doing a lot of things here. I know many of us say, well, you know, if I passed through that Red Sea and I saw that, I'd, I'd trust God the rest of my days. Nope. God's already done more than put a bronze serpent on a pole, He put His Son on the pole. If you won't believe that, you won't believe anything. Some of you still run around everywhere looking for a sign from God. God's already given you the sign. As, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights, but then he'll rise again on the third day. That's the only sign you need. God has already told us. And God had told them. And he'd given them every evidence of salvation in the coming Messiah, in Jesus. But they would not look to the pole. They wouldn't look to the cross. They only looked to themselves. And they died. Complaining is verbal poison. And it makes your soul sick. And it endangers the soul of everyone around you. Because it causes them to become dissatisfied in God. No one ever thinks that something like that is such a grave sin. You know, we agree with the sin of idolatry and immorality. Of course, God ought to punish those people, but not the complainers. And I have a complaint about God punishing complainers, don't you? Next comes the sin of criticism. And he says in, in verse number 10, Look, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. What is this story about? Well, Korah and some of his buddies got together. And they said, look, Moses is not the only one that God uses. We, we also have abilities here. Who is he to tell us what to do? Who is he to say? So they publicly challenge Moses' leadership of the people. Here's the problem. God had chosen Moses, not them. Whether we like it or not, whether, whether they thought their ability was better than Moses is absolutely beside the point because God had chosen Moses. And so God said, I'll tell you what, let's uh, trick you on out to the tent and uh, we'll see which one God has chosen. And we know that that story, what happens next is the ground swallows these people up and them and their whole families. And not only that, there are about 14,000 plus people that had rallied behind Korah. They also died. So let me say something to you guys, and, and I can say this now because it, it doesn't feel self-serving since I'm transitioning out and you'll have a new leader to come in. So I want to say this on his behalf, and, and hopefully this will help you. The calling to the office of the pastor is not given by the church. That office is given directly by Christ. You don't get to say what he does you don't get to say what his role is you don't get to say what his duties are God has already said it now what you can do as a church is you can say okay we want to open our church to the leadership of this pastor or we want to close the doors to the leadership of this pastor that's the church's prerogative but it is not your prerogative to bring someone in to exercise the office that Christ has given to them and criticize the daylights out of them and challenge them every step of the way. If it's a biblical problem, then address it. If it's a matter of leadership, get behind it. Most of you in here have never pastored a church. You don't know what it's like. Most of you don't know things that the pastor will know. He knows things about you. I know things about you guys right now. I haven't said to you. I want to, but I don't. 
But I know those things. I know where most of you are in your walk with the Lord. No one else has given that. No one else has given wisdom to lead a congregation. Not the deacons and not the youth pastor and not the worship pastor. Only one person. Your duty then is to pray for this person. And the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, 17, obey those that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they have been given watch over your souls that they may do it with joy, not with grief because they have to give an account. There's an accountability coming. People always ask me this. Well, who are you accountable to? I said, I want to tell you something. I'm accountable in a way you'll never understand. Pastors don't get to sin with reckless abandon like church members do. You don't get to lay down at night in peace. You, you don't get to stop worrying. I was thinking back through my ministry and just the amount of heartbreak over people is just astronomical. Just the, amount, the heartbreak of their losses, the heartbreak of their ruin, the heartbreak. And, and I still relive a lot of those things because those people have become dear to me. It's the curse and the blessing of being a pastor. So you have got to get behind this person. Now, I know the first thing you're going to say is, number one, whoever it is, the first problem is this. You're going to say he's not as good looking as our last pastor. That's a problem. Okay, so I, I appreciate that, and I know how deep you are in Christ now. And some of you are going to be like, well, he doesn't preach like Pastor Tim. Nobody does. Okay, we're, di we're just all different. You'll have to get used to it. I promise you that saw cuts both ways. You pastored another church, and you're just like, man, these people ain't like the last group. I'll tell you that. You know, they're not as easy to deal with as the last group. I've never seen it, you know. So there, you, you can't start, start comparing. He can't compare you to the other congregation, and you're not going to be able to compare him to me. If you look closely, you'll find you have a better pastor. I'm the worst one you'll ever have. I promise you that. So you, you can't, what you have to do is like God, for whatever reason, called this man to the office of the elder pastor. For whatever reason. We don't know the reasons. God has done that. And in our wisdom as a church, God leading us by the Holy Spirit of God, we're going to open our doors, you know, with a lot of fear and, and trepidation, but we open our door to him. We open this office to him over our church and say, God has called you. We approve or we verify or affirm that call. Now exercise the leadership and authority of the pastor over us. That's what you're asking for. Don't be like Korah. I'll do it better. I don't know why the pastor did that. I don't know why the pastor canceled church and was three feet of snow. I don't know what's wrong with him. You know, it, it, God doesn't like that. Now, there are reasons when you can have a concern. There's nothing wrong with that. Things like, I don't know about that. Or there are times you think, I don't know if that's biblical. Somebody's going to help me with this. I don't get it. But you can't turn this into a popularity contest. That's, that's not how it works. Either the person's called to that office by the Lord and has been invested with that authority or the person hasn't. And if the person has and you call that person, then you rally behind them and you love them. You do that. Okay? That's, I'm, I'm asking you and I'm begging you, please do that. And, and would you do this? Do something for them that, that really didn't happen for me. Give them a honeymoon. Get, give them a year that you just love on them. We had a controversy here before we even got here. This church is not that church anymore. You don't have to be that. You just love them. You say, well, I don't know if I like them. They may not like you either, but love them anyway. And just give them a year of, of blessing until they get their feet on the ground. So when that day comes, and I don't know when it'll be, I, I hope sooner rather than later, but when that day comes, have your heart ready and open to them. Now I want to say this as well. Uh, many of us here are Appalachian background. My wife is not, thank God. But many are that. And you know what we are? We're suspicious people. We, we just are by nature, okay? And, and so I just want to say we're careful, we're suspicious, and all that. I'm not asking you to be something other than what you are. But you can be kind. You can be caring. And I've seen our church do it over and over again.
So do that. Make it, make it just a, such a blessing. And then after that first year, wear them out. Okay. Public harsh criticism of the leader that God has chosen is a dangerous thing. That's what we learn from the sin of criticism, criticizing leaders. It's a dangerous thing. You better have a good reason, and you better not be doing it out there to everyone else and try to incite public insurrection. Having a discussion is one thing. Having a disagreement is something else. But being cynical and caustic in our criticism in order to try to tear down the leadership and authority of the person that is the leader appointed by God is just a wrong thing. It's just wrong, and it's dangerous to your health. Now, that's saying all of that. But in verse 11, we get a little bit of a transition here. Now these things happened to them as an example that means as a warning, the kind of example that warns us. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. We have a privilege. I, I, I was reminded of this so many times. Abraham would have loved to have seen what we've seen. Abraham would have loved to have all of this in his hand. Abraham would have loved to see the worldwide spread of the gospel. He would have loved to have seen that. He didn't have those privileges. So be careful about saying, all oh, people in the Old Testament, they had so much more than us. No, our privileges are even greater. What they had by symbol and what they had by illusion and allegory, <laughs> we have the written word. And so here we have, we're the ones, the end of the ages has come on. What, what does this mean? We're in the last days. Now, I, I don't know how long that goes, but the day of the Lord is upon us. And, and maybe we have a week, maybe we have a month, maybe we have five years or ten, I, I don't know. But there is not another historical epic coming. This is the last one until Christ comes. Now, how do we not do this? How do we not be like Israel? How do we not do that? So look in verses 11, uh, 12 and 13, and this is where our escape is laid out for us clearly here. You know, Paul doesn't just bash us and leave us dying in the ditch. <laughs> He's like, okay, now let me help you get up and walk. And so here he says it. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what does he show us here? First of all, this. How do you escape this? How do you es escape being a bad example as a Christian? N number one, avoid self-righteousness. Verse 12 speaks of that. He says in this verse, if you think that you stand, you better be careful lest you fall. We know the book of Proverbs tells us pride goes before destruction and the haughty spirit before the fall. The warning here, though, is, is really this. Now, we, we take this verse and we apply it to a lot of situations. And I think in a secondary sense, that's probably fine. You know, don't be prideful. God will bring you down. I, I think that's a, it's an eternal principle that's always at work. But this, one, this particular verse, though, in the context, what is it about? It's about... Be careful that you think you're a follower of Christ and you really aren't. Don't lean on, well, I said a prayer when I was five years old to receive Jesus, but your life is showing compromise and carnality and complaining and criticism and a host of other things. In other words, does your life measure up to your lips? What you say is that really what you are? And so you better take heed that you say, well, I got this, when you really are going to fall. And that's what he's saying. The people of Israel thought, we're followers of God. I mean, we're children of Abraham, aren't we? What did Jesus call them? Children of the devil. God can just take some rocks and make children of Abraham. We, he, he doesn't need that from you. And book of Romans tells us the true children of Abraham are those who have trusted in Christ. So take heed. Be careful. Don't be like the Israelites who assumed 
that because they were related to Abraham, they were automatically in the promised land. Most people that I know think these two things, that if they are an American, and if or they served in the military, they're going to heaven. I'm serious. It's frightening. Listen, I, I want to help you with something, and, and, and you know, you're going to take me as unpatriotic, but I know when a nation has slidden away from God and when it hasn't. I'm wise enough to realize that, and I think you are too. But if you're a military person, would you do this? If you're going to do the, the graveside thing with the military, would you, would you ahead of time get a hold of the chaplain and don't let him read those lines that makes it sound like that if you served in the military that you go to heaven? Just tell him, don't read it. Just don't read that part at my funeral because you're misleading people. It's not true. It's just not true. And some of us just think because of that or we think because our granddad was a Baptist preacher or whatever. I would say it's a mark against you probably. And so those things don't count in this way. Israel thought they counted. They thought because they were experienced. I hear this from people all the time. Do you know the Lord? Oh, yeah, God has done so much for me. You know, I was in the hospital, and I got out of the hospital, and, you know, he's helped me along the way, and I've always believed in the man upstairs. They think because of common grace that God doing commonly good things for people that he does for his whole creation, that somehow that they've got it right with God, and they don't. They've never come to the cross. They've never looked to the serpent. They've never done it. They never lifted up their eyes in faith toward Jesus and say, help. Instead, they I've got this. I got it. Israel proved their constant unbelief. And by this constant unbelief, they proved that they were never a part of the covenant of grace. Instead, they were all citizens of this national covenant that God had. But that covenant was going to fade away. And not only that, that covenant saves no one. Our escape is this, take heed lest we fall. Another way that Paul says, says it is this, make sure that you're in the faith. You need to be certain. You don't need to live with a lack of assurance. There's no reason for it whatsoever. So avoid trusting in yourself for righteousness and instead trust in the righteousness that Christ provided on your behalf. Then secondly this, how do you escape? First of all, you want to avoid self-righteousness, but appeal to God's faithfulness. Notice these words. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. So the word temptation, you know, can mean one of two things. It can mean temptation to sin or it can mean a trial. Not necessarily to sin, but just a difficulty. I think in this verse it means both. The trial of temptation. But, but here's the limitation on that. Whatever you're going through, other people do too. Whether it's a difficulty in life, other Christians are going through that. Or whether it's a terrible temptation that you're trying to overcome and it's plaguing you, other Christians have done that too. You're not alone. You're not, it, your situation is not unique. It may be difficult, but it's not unique. It's common to man. But here is the central phrase of this verse God is faithful that's the center of this this whole thing that's the eye of the storm when we're being tempted and even fall to be unfaithful God is faithful in what way in this situation is God faithful God was faithful to the children of Israel how was he faithful he never let them have to deal with any difficulty that he was not going to meet the need. He always did that, and yet they disbelieved him. So for us, we're not going to be marching through the wilderness literally, but we are pilgrims on this journey through the wilderness, are we not? And so what's going to happen is all kinds of trials and temptations in our lives. But God will be faithful just like he provided for them. He's going to provide for you. And in what ways he's going to provide for you? He's not going to let you be, attempt, be tempted beyond your ability. Now, let me, let me speak a word to you about your ability. Your ability here is not your human ability. The ability here that he's talking about is the ability that he gives you. And your ability increases as your commitment and dedication to him increases. As your intake of the word of God and being allowed by the, uh, the Holy Spirit to help you to enact that and, and live out what you're learning. 
your ability to handle these things will increase. And that's why the further you get along the journey, the harder and more difficult temptations and trials you have. They're difficult. Why? Because one of these days you've got to come up to the edge of the Jordan, don't you? And you've got to die. That's a trial. And you're going to be tempted to fear. And that's coming one day. So God's walking us through this world so that little by little he, he works in us. and he, Trials will come. Temptations will come. But God is telling us he's not going to let that level be beyond what he's prepared you for. He's prepared you for this. So it's coming. And then he also is going to tell you this. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape. What does this mean? You may be under that trial. You may be under that temptation for a long time. But he has already promised you there's a door out. And at the appropriate time, he will show you where that door is. He has already prepared the door. When there's, there comes the point that God says, you've had enough. I'm not trying to break you. I'm trying to build you. And so it's coming to the place where I think you're breaking. I'm going to show you the door so you can get out. And so knowing that in your mind, that God is not going to just leave you there. He's going to give you the door out. That helps you to do the last part that you may be able to endure it. How, how can you endure it? Because God has not given you anything beyond what he's prepared you for. And secondly, he's not going to take you and leave you there any longer than what you can stand. And he's already shown you there will be a door out of this. It's not forever. No matter what it is you're going through, it's not forever. Right? It's not forever. Even if it's all your life. It's not forever. So, what, what do we do with this? You know, we're, we're trying not to be a bad example. We're trying not to be faithless like the children of Israel. So, what do we do with it? Many of us want to be like Abraham or Paul or John or so on. All of those are good examples of following Christ, but we need to learn what not to do and what not to be like. We need to be warned by faithless Israel. We need to make sure, first of all, that we're truly in the faith and we're not relying on something else except looking to the rock who provides. Our lives will show whether we're in Christ or whether we're still in Adam. Look at your life as the indicator. Now, we've said this a hundred times, Christians can, can commit any kind of sin. We can sin with the best of them. As a matter of fact, we have a lot of knowledge, we can sin better than the rest of them. But Christians can't live that way. You can't live that way very long. If you're comfortable in a lifestyle of sin, then that means you're not comfortable in heaven. You, you can't be comfortable with sin and living that way and say, oh, I'm a Christian. No, that, that's just false. So the children of Israel were comfortable in sinning and complaining and rebelling and living in carnality and compromise. They, com they were comfortable with that. They never turned to the Lord with all their heart. They just wouldn't. We want to be sure that we're not that way. And secondly, if we are in Christ, then what we do want to do is demonstrate a life that follows Jesus faithfully. One of the people I admire, and I don't even know that he's of my theological ilk, but I've always admired the devotion of A.W. Tozer, his commitment to the Lord. And he's written a lot of books, and encouraging books. Some of you have read those books, uh, and most of them are to the people of God, and and so, on his tombstone, he, he has this phrase, A.W. Tozer, man of God, period, that's it. And I used to say to my family, I hope that when I die, that you can put that on my tombstone. Timothy Klein, man of God. But I think I changed my mind. I think what I want to mind now is this. Timothy Klein, God is faithful. God is faithful. If you don't know anything else about all of this, what I preach today, and it's just too much, please remember that. Mark it in your Bible. God is faithful. The Bible says, even if we're unfaithful, God has to be faithful, or he'd be untrue to himself. God is faithful. You can count on him. Maybe you're here today as a Christian and you're just wallowing in some sin. God is faithful. He'll get you out of it if you let him. 
Maybe you're undergoing some trial and it just seems so heavy and you're like, man, I've just put up with this so long. I know some of you. You've got kids that are wayward. You've got grandkids that are on drugs. You've got all kinds of stuff going on in life and it's just such a burden. It's so heavy. But I want to let you know, first of all, other people in here are dealing with it too. You're not alone. The devil always wants you to make you think you're the only one and it's not true. You're not the only one. God has brought this into your life and you know why he's brought it into your life? because he's made you able to bear it. It's not always about escaping things. It's about being able to bear it. And you think, I can't do it another day. God will only leave it on you as long as he's provided and prepared you to bear it. And understand this, the day will come that he'll open the door and you'll escape it. The escape is coming. But for now, you have to bear it. What do you do with that? You go to the Lord every day. And you ask him for strength. That's why we talk about Jesus being our friend. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. He'll bear it with you. He'll make you able. And who knows? Maybe you going through that is something God wants to use to help someone else be able to bear their burden as well. Well, let's pray together for a moment. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, praise you, that you show us not only what to do, but what not to do, and how to avoid being a bad example. Lord, where each of us at some point in our life or sometime maybe we've been a bad example, but Lord, if we're belonging to you, you're not gonna let us live there. So I pray for deliverance for your people. I pray that they would be thankful I pray, Father, that as your followers, Jesus, we would always look to what you did for us on the cross and say, if our life is a living hell, you, what you did for us on the cross is enough. It's more than we deserved. And thank you, Jesus. So cultivate in our lives contentment and gratitude to you, Lord. Trust in your work through people and trusting you to get us through the trials and temptations of life until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.